Okay, welcome to the Medicine Podcast. This is Dr. Christopher Hernandez, your host, and today I decided I would do an episode on ARDS, or Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. This syndrome is being seen in tons of so-called coronavirus patients, by which I mean, as discussed in the last episode, patients with COVID-19, which is the disease caused by the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So let's talk about ARDS. Okay, let's discuss what any doctor who works in an ICU at any time should know about ARDS. Let's start with the essentials. ARDS is a clinical diagnosis characterized by the rapid onset of diffuse bilateral non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. That's pretty much the phrase to remember and understand. The rapid onset of diffuse bilateral non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. This leads to respiratory failure and to reduced oxygenation. These are the core features of the syndrome, and they are captured by the famous Berlin criteria, which definitively established the diagnosis. I'll go through those in a second, but first, let's discuss what causes ARDS. Such descriptions tend to be pretty hand-wavy in my opinion, because ARDS is just one of those things that can basically be seen in any severe illness, kind of like DIC. Sepsis, which itself is a fairly broad term, is the most common cause of ARDS, but there are many others, including many which are direct insults to the lungs, and so make a little more intuitive sense in that regard. Those direct pulmonary insults include things like pneumonia, aspiration of gastric contents, smoke inhalation or inhalation of some sort of noxious chemical, trauma to the thorax, almost drowning or near drowning, Those all seem to make at least intuitive sense in that they seem like they could cause something to go badly wrong in the lungs. But it may just be better to think of ARDS as one of those bad things that can happen when people are sick because it's also sometimes seen in processes like bacteremia, shock, pancreatitis, blood transfusion, DIC, trauma to parts of the body other than the thorax, etc. If it happens in the context of transfusion, it is of course known as trolley, T-R-A-L-I, which is transfusion-related acute lung injury. All right, let's zoom in on the lungs a little bit and talk about what's actually going on. At a finer level of detail, the pathophys of ARDS essentially involves the fluid and the vasculature getting into the alveoli. That is, the stuff from the lung's blood supply gets into parts of the lungs that should contain air. This, of course, has to involve some combination of the following events. The vascular endothelium getting injured, the alveolar epithelial cells getting injured, and surfactant production getting disrupted. Those are all basically barriers between the blood and the airways of the lungs, so they of course would have to be disrupted in some way. In ARDS, they do get disrupted, and fluid and protein extravasate into the alveoli and the interstitium of the lung. Now, if you think about it for a second, you can imagine how having all your alveoli, where gas exchange is supposed to take place, filled with fluid might be a big problem. And it is. These patients really, really struggle to breathe. This can be described mechanistically as due to an increase in intrapulmonary shunting. Remember, the definition of a shunt is decreased ventilation with normal perfusion. There's also an increase in lung dead space. Recall that dead space is anywhere you have good ventilation but no perfusion. 
A certain amount of our dead space is naturally anatomical, such as the air that only gets to the trachea and no further, but alveolar dead space is possible and seen in ARDS due to endothelial injury and disruption of blood flow to ventilated alveoli. Lastly, you can see decreased lung compliance, which I think of as essentially due to a very wet lung. A lung is like a balloon, it's supposed to stretch with inspiration. If it's weighed down by fluid, it's not going to do that very well. Poor compliance. All right, so it's pretty easy to imagine, I think, how all of the above leads to patients developing significant respiratory distress, which brings us back to the Berlin criteria. These are used to formally diagnose ARDS. Let's go through them now. The most specific and quantitative of the Berlin criteria essentially classifies how much the patient is struggling to oxygenate by way of the so-called PF ratio, which is often mentioned by critical care docs to communicate how well a patient is oxygenating. The PF ratio is the ratio of the arterial PO2 over the FiO2. So that's basically the ratio of how much oxygen is actually getting into your blood, your arterial oxygen, over how much oxygen you're being provided with. FiO2 stands for fraction of inspired oxygen. This is a pretty important parameter in critical care, so let's take a moment to think about the PF ratio. The air we breathe normally is 21% oxygen, which represents an FiO2 of 0.21, and a normal arterial PO2 would be about 100 millimeters of mercury. So that's 100 over 0.21, which is about 500. So if you remember those numbers, then it's easy to remember that the PF ratio of a pair of normal healthy human lungs is about 500. You can basically think of anything above 400 as good enough, as reflective of good, well-functioning lungs. The ratio is capturing how much of our inspired oxygen our bodies are able to successfully transmit to our blood. So let's connect that to ARDS. If our alveoli are pathologically full of fluid, presumably we aren't going to be able to oxygenate as well. That means our arterial PO2 is going to go down in comparison to our FiO2, so the PF ratio is going to fall. For ARDS, the cutoff to remember is 300. If the PF ratio is less than 300, while the patient is on at least five of PEEP, that fulfills that particular ARDS criterion, or Berlin criterion. Then you can further use the number to classify the severity of ARDS. According to the 2012 Berlin criteria, a PF ratio in the 200 to 300 range is classified as mild ARDS. A PF ratio in the 1 to 200 range is classified as ARDS of moderate severity and a PF ratio below 100 represents severe ARDS. Go ahead and run those numbers over your tongue because it's definitely good to get a feel for the significance of the PF ratio. If you've got a patient in the ICU whose PF ratio is teetering around 100, you have reason to be very worried about them. Okay, so that's only one of the Berlin criteria. The PF ratio cutoff of 300 or less while the patient is getting five centimeters of water's worth of PEEP, which obviously means they're being ventilated in some way, whether that is non-invasive or invasive. So being ventilated is a prerequisite for the diagnosis. Technically, you cannot diagnose ARDS with certainty until you put them on some sort of ventilation and see how well they're oxygenating. But a lot of the time, you pretty much know it when you see it. When a sick patient's chest x-ray goes totally white when it was fine two days ago, they've probably developed ARDS. So let's talk about the three other Berlin criteria. The other criteria are relatively simple and are basically just part of the definition of ARDS as a clinical syndrome. 
The first has to do with the rapidity with which it develops, saying it has to be within one week of a known ARDS insult. So that could be pneumonia, trauma, sepsis, whatever. It's usually within 72 hours, but the criterion allows for up to a week. So that criterion just has to do with timing. The next criterion is bilateral opacities on chest imaging consistent with pulmonary edema. That's the whiteout x-ray I just mentioned and is what you expect to see on imaging for ARDS. You can really see some quite dramatic x-rays with diffuse edema just everywhere. If you see that when a recent x-ray was relatively clear, ARDS can be a very easy diagnosis to make. Ultrasound and CT imaging are also perfectly legitimate modalities by which this criterion can be fulfilled. The last criterion is simply respiratory failure not related to cardiac failure or volume overload. Respiratory failure is already implied by the diminished PF ratio, of course. I think this criterion has more to do with ruling out something cardiogenic or something related to volume overload. If the patient has JVD up to his ears or 4 plus pitting edema, maybe you're dealing with something else. But if the patient has no evidence of volume overload and no particular history of heart failure, then it's a lot more likely you have ARDS on your hands. All right, I think that's all I really need to say about the diagnosis, presentation, and pathophysiology of ARDS. So let's just talk for a little while about the management of ARDS and call it a day. Needless to say, the real treatment here is to treat the underlying condition, pneumonia, sepsis, pancreatitis, whatever it is, but I'm just going to talk about the management of the ARDS part of the picture specifically. The cornerstone of ARDS management, as you've probably been hearing in the news lately, is the ventilator. High PEEP, low tidal volume. That's the mantra. High PEEP to help keep the alveoli open, low tidal volume to minimize volume trauma, to which ARDS patients are particularly susceptible. The other intervention with proven mortality benefit is proning, literally turning the patient face down. This is thought to relieve the pressure on the lungs from the heart and mediastinum so that they expand more fully and function better. The PROSEVA trial, P-R-O-S-E-V-A, published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2013, was a large randomized trial that demonstrated a mortality benefit in patients with a PF ratio of less than 150 by current criteria that would be moderate to severe ARDS, with proning. The resultant recommendation is to consider proning patients for at least 12 hours a day. In the trial, they did it for at least 16 hours a day. But let's go back and talk more about the value of high PEEP and low tidal volumes. The volume trauma I mentioned before is what it sounds like. If parts of the lung expand too much due to too much air being forced in, they can become over-distended and injury to the lung can result. ARDS patients are particularly susceptible to this because they often have areas of non-compliant, wet, diseased lung right next to areas of normal, compliant lung, and it's been shown that a low tidal volume strategy helps avoid volume trauma in these patients. Some numbers here are worth knowing. Tidal volume is typically communicated in milliliters per kilogram, and the recommended tidal volume in ARDS patients is somewhere in the four to eight range. I think most of our ICU attendings lean closer to the four end of that range, or at least less than six. So that's four to six milliliters per kilogram, as compared to a high tidal volume, which would be something like 10 to 12 milliliters per kilogram which is actually what ARDS patients were often getting before the ARMA trial, an important study published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2000 that really changed the way ARDS is treated. That's the ARMA, ARMA trial. 
Interestingly, the benefits of PEEP can also be expressed in terms of trauma to the lungs. In this case, there is this notion that if alveoli in the distal airways are opening and closing too often, it causes trauma to them, called atelectrauma. Atelectasis, recall, refers to collapse of the lung. It comes from the Greek, where ateles means imperfect and ectasis means extension. So atelectasis means imperfect extension or collapse of some part of the lung. Atelectrauma refers to damage to the lung from repeated collapse of parts of it, usually the alveoli or distal airways. Okay, PEEP stands for positive end expiratory pressure, meaning that the vent is still providing positive pressure to the lungs even throughout expiration. This positive pressure prevents the alveoli from collapsing and helps prevent this atelectrauma. So that's one of the major benefits of PEEP. Of course, by keeping alveoli open, it also recruits those alveoli for gas exchange. So not only is it preventing trauma, but PEEP is also actively improving VQ mismatch by maintaining alveolar recruitment. Typically, the respiratory therapists are responsible for titrating PEEP up as much as tolerated, but a basic principle is to keep an eye on the patient's plateau pressure. If you're able to turn up the PEEP without the plateau pressure increasing, that suggests that you're still recruiting more alveoli. Basically, you try to turn the PEEP up as high as you can while still keeping the plateau pressure below 30 centimeters of water. This limit helps prevent barotrauma, which is just what it sounds like, namely the term for trauma that results from too much pressure in the lungs. Speaking of alveolar recruitment, you may have heard of something called recruitment maneuvers. This is a relatively desperate measure taken when the patient has truly refractory hypoxemia. The idea is to apply a large amount of pressure for a short period of time to try to really open up the airways and the alveoli. For example, 35 centimeters of water for 40 seconds in a row, or even 40 to 45 centimeters of water for two minutes straight. That's a lot of pressure for a long time, and it's thought that it might help sort of pop things open. It's a bit of a controversial technique though, and should not be attempted in patients with hypovolemia or shock because it often causes the patient's hemodynamics to deteriorate at least temporarily, but it's good to at least know what it is. Okay, I think that's all we need to say about the ventilator, which of course is the cornerstone of treatment for ARDS, but there are some non-ventilatory aspects that you should be aware of. First of all, sedation is often needed to keep the patient comfortable while making sure that the desired low tidal volume vent settings are achieved. But excessive sedation can worsen outcomes in a lot of ways, more delirium, more infections, longer ACU stays, etc. So it's important to adhere to protocols that keep sedation to the minimum necessary. Similarly, the amount of fluid given to the patient should be kept to the minimum necessary. There's another trial name to remember here if you're really going above and beyond. The FACT trial, F-A-C-C-T. This trial compared a liberal fluid resuscitation strategy to a conservative resuscitation strategy and found that the latter, the conservative strategy, led to improved oxygenation, less time on the vent, and less time in the ICU. That all sounds pretty good to me, so in ARDS patients, you should generally err on the side of giving less fluid, unless of course you need to for other reasons, such as hemodynamic instability, or end organ hypoperfusion, or anything like that. It's also good to be aware that, at least in the past, some people may have claimed that there's a mortality benefit to paralyzing the patient, that is, with a neuromuscular blocker like cisatracurium or Nimbex, 
When I was first working in the ICU as an intern, we had a particularly academic fellow on service who pimped me all the time, and at one point he asked me to list all the interventions that were shown to improve mortality in ARDS. I couldn't provide the full list at the time, but this is what he wanted. High PEEP, low tidal volume, prone positioning, and paralysis. At the time, those were the four things, because there was a big randomized trial conducted in 2010 that showed a mortality benefit with paralysis in patients with severe ARDS, and that was defined for that study as a PF ratio of less than 150. However, the practice was still controversial even at the time, and then a subsequent randomized trial in 2019 failed to show that same mortality benefit. So I'll just say that the data for paralysis is a bit mixed, and I'll leave it at that. If you have to paralyze the patient to achieve your event-setting goals, though, which have been definitively proven to be beneficial, then that's probably worth it. Alright, I think that's most of what I wanted to say about ARDS, really just the basics. I do want to discuss ECMO as well, which is sometimes used when ARDS patients remain hypoxemic despite all of the above, but this episode is getting long, so I think I'll cover ECMO in a separate episode at some point. But to finish up with ARDS, it's a serious condition of course, with a high mortality rate, roughly about 40%. The more severe the ARDS, the higher the mortality, which you'd expect. But interestingly, it's actually usually not the ARDS itself that kills the patient. That is to say, it isn't usually refractory hypoxemia that kills the patient, but rather something extrapulmonary like multi-organ dysfunction or sepsis or a secondary infection or something like that. Sadly, even if these patients do survive, they often suffer long-term consequences such as persistent weakness, decreased exercise tolerance, decreased quality of life, and even increased psychiatric morbidity. So it's a syndrome to be avoided, and it's very tragic that so many people are about to experience this as a result of COVID-19. Alright, that's it. Stay safe, everyone. Practice social distancing. Wash your hands. Stay at home as much as possible. This is Dr. Christopher Hernandez, over and out.